Um, Mark Bauerlein first came to my attention in the late 90s when I read a blurb for a new book with the provocative title, Literary Criticism and Autopsy. I ordered it, read it, and found my own concerns expressed in it with more theoretical rigor than I had imagined ever bringing to a discussion of a phenomenon that has long concerned me, what Professor Bauerlein calls the disciplinary suicide of academic literary criticism. That phenomenon is, needless to say, not good news for those of us who care about literary texts and literary language. Then, just a couple of years ago, I, like many of you, I imagine, read several news stories and journalistic articles about a major 2004 study and report by the National Endowment for the Arts, Reading at Risk, a Survey of Literary Reading in America. That report shows in excruciating detail that literary reading is declining at a precipitous rate among virtually all demographic groups in the country. The director of research and analysis at the NEA who was responsible for overseeing that report turned out to be the same Mark Bauerlein, professor of English at Emory University. Coca-Cola, is it people still call it Coca-Cola University? Sometimes, Sometimes yeah. Certainly can't get a Pepsi on campus. Yeah, in, in Atlanta. Um, that I had read before, the same person. And here he was delivering even more bad news to professors of literature. Um, this guy was clearly becoming the Jeremiah of my profession, um, and I needed to meet him. And he, he was not some cranky old guard graybeard. I should not say that, given the way. Um, complaining about the new generation sins, which is a common academic malady. I found out that Mark Bauerlein was a relatively young professor, trained as I was in the 80s, in high theory in American literature. As a UCLA graduate student, he had studied with Joseph Riddle, one of the first, and still even after a young and untimely death, one of the most sophisticated of all American Derridian deconstructionist critics and theorists. Professor, Mark, Professor Bauerlein's first book, Whitman and the American Idiom, a title I'm sure all Whitman scholars wish they had thought of, um, shows the influence of his mentor. In the same year as he published the autopsy book in 1997, Professor Bauerlein also published through the New Americanist series at Duke University Press, an important series for um, literature and history professors, The Pragmatic Mind, Explorations in the Psychology of Belief, which is a precise philosophical and theoretical analysis of the three founders of American philosophical pragmatism, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, William James, and Charles Sanders Peirce. One agenda of that project is to rehabilitate Peirce in the face of a widespread dismissal of him by the so-called neo-pragmatists, most notably Richard Rorty. Mark's other agenda in that book is to define philosophical pragmatism as a cognitive style, a habit of mind, a kind of intellectual gestalt, distinguished from opposed philosophical commitments or habits, especially a correspondence or referential theory of truth or theory of knowledge. 
It is very instructive to read these two 1997 books side by side because the literary criticism book is essentially putting into practice the very cognitive style that is explained in the pragmatism book. For example, using one of pragmatism's basic tenets that it is impossible to ground practices in, an ele- in some element external to those practices, Professor Bauerlein neatly shows how attacks from within literary studies against high theory, high literary theory, formalist study of literature, in other words, literary criticism, rests on a basic conceptual mistake. Quote, they take a disciplinary object, literature, a focus of study, literature, a focus of study shaped and selected by the discipline itself, and then censor the discipline for misrepresenting that object. This conceptual mistake is also obviously almost always committed by advocates of interdisciplinary study. There's a lot of them on the CC campus. Um, who, Who think that two disciplines or three disciplines may study the same object simply through different methodologies and vocabularies never realizing, as pragmatism's own version of the linguistic turn tells us, that it is precisely those methodological and terminological investments that construct the objects of our study. They are not separate from those disciplinary investments. Well, I could go on because I'm such a fan of Bauerlein's work on disciplinarity, but I would be remiss if I didn't tell you about another direction in his career, exemplified in his 2001 book, Negrophobia, a race riot in Atlanta, 1906, an engaging narrative history of what Mark calls, quote, one of the most dramatic and disgusting episodes in U.S. history, unquote, when white mobs took over downtown Atlanta for several days, abusing and even murdering many African Americans. In a similar vein to that project, in 2003 he co-authored the book Civil Rights Chronicle, The African-American Struggle for Freedom. More recently, he has published with co-authors X.J. Kennedy and Dana Joya, who was his former boss at the NEA, a handbook of literary terms for Longland publishers. So here is a thinker equally at home fussing around in the archives for years to write history as he is engaged in the in the studied, rigorous, as, as he is in engaging in the studied, rigorous, logical steps of high theory and philosophy, equally steeped in 19th century American philosophical tradition and 19th century American literary history, all the while, incidentally, armed with massive amounts of data about the reading habits of today's students, which brings me to the lecture. Tonight, he will speak to us about that habit, one which which has engaged his attention since his public service at the NEA. The title of tonight's talk is Milton versus MySpace, The Menace of Screens. Since I just, I'm I'm teaching a class in film this block, I have an ironic attitude towards the title. It is my pleasure to introduce Mark Bauerlein. Okay. Thank you, Barry. Thank you for inviting me to campus. Uh, it's, it's been a wonderful little interlude to come here and get out of the smog and the traffic and the heat of Atlanta for a few days. I keep calling my wife uh, from the last, you know, 24 hours and, and describing the sun setting over the, over the mountains and uh, 
the, uh, uh, the big clouds coming in and, and so forth while she's out you know, at Home Depot uh, looking at things for, for our house but, uh, and, and uh, getting, uh, getting envious, so, which I poured on, of course. Um, but uh, th- thank you, Barry, for having me in Colorado College. Thanks to the NEH for supporting uh, these series of lectures. It, it looks like a great program, and, and you've got a full schedule this year of, of interesting people coming in. Uh, it's also good to see a lot of students here uh, in the audience, and so I'm going to key some of my comments accordingly uh, toward, toward you because uh, it really uh, focuses on an issue in which you are the things uh, in play. You're the stakes involved in a lot of this discussion. And I hope that you feel free in our little question and answer session to, to chime in because I'll be talking a bit about, about your habits and bringing data in uh, regarding that. So let me begin with just an image uh, that, that I remember from, from last summer a year ago uh, when my, my wife and our little infant, we were walking around in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, I was living there at the time, and it was just a Sunday afternoon. Uh, we, we went over to around this, the Clarendon Metro stop, and there's a lot of nice shops uh, around there, Whole Foods and, and you know, Williams-Sonoma and Barnes and & Noble, things like that. But we were just walking around, uh, and I noticed actually in the planters uh, around this area that had speakers uh, in the, hidden inside the planters blasting out uh, pop music, uh, which is kind of odd for it to be outside. But we walked around, and we got to a certain point and went inside this one particular store because it really looked hot uh, from, from the outside. And it was the Apple store. Uh, the, the, I don't know if you've been in, in an Apple store. They, they've, they've popped up in a lot of, uh, a lot of malls. Um, well, they need pretty big spaces for the Apple stores. But sleek, white, all white inside. All the things inside are, are white. High ceilings, you had lines of laptops uh, on, on the left. There on, available, you could go check your email, you could go uh, surf, surf the internet. Even though these are things you were to buy, you could also go in and use this. On the right, you had iPods, uh, different gadgets. Against the back wall, you had a large screen, and I don't know if it was a video or a, or a game going on. There were, there were a lot of kids around watching because they had all these couches and chairs sitting around. I don't know if they were you know, doing something or, or not. And there was lots of energy uh, going on in the store, lots of, lots of teenagers and, and young adults going in and out of the store. But what really attracted my attention was the display window uh, in, the, in the Apple store. And it was a huge, you know, large plate glass. You had it divided really into three pieces. Uh, the top part about a third of the way down, you had hanging this poster board going all the way across the window, and it showed two or three shelves of books. And these were classics of sociology, of literature, and history. Then you had a break, and then at the bottom third, you had the same thing, this big, long poster board showing bookshelves uh, with all these books uh, piled on, you know, several hundred of them all the way across the display. In the middle, you had a break, and you had a real shelf. And on the real shelf, you had five laptops with the screens up. And underneath the laptop was a sign that said, the only books you'll need, okay, the laptops. 
is the on, these e-books, the only books you'll need. Now that that struck me. I said to to uh, my wife, get a picture. You, you got a snapshot? Get 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 a picture of that uh, right now because uh, that that was that was meaningful. Uh, that that statement, the way these books, the way these computers were being marketed, it wasn't simply this is a great wonderful thing. Uh, this computer is the best computer around. It was actually defined against a rival. These other books, all those other books portrayed here, you don't need them. Okay, this is the this is the only book, the only books you'll need. You don't need all those other books. All you need is this computer. Uh, it's uh, in in itself. It's a library. It's a web browser. It's a, it's a mailbox. It's a music store. Uh, it's it's a DVD player. All these things. And actually, you can download a lot of books. You know, a lot of those, a lot of those books won't be downloadable, but you can get a lot of books uh, there on on the screen. Now, for I think for for a lot of young people, you probably register that display window differently from us as older older guys. Uh, we see it if we accept this slogan at face value. Then, to those of us who, whose living is based upon books, uh, who, who believe that browsing the internet is no replacement for, for reading books, and who also believe that reading things on the screen, at least at this point, is no replacement for reading books, uh, we see this display as an assault. Okay, this is a statement of hostility. Okay, if it is representative of this world, then if you want to summarize digital youth culture is out to eliminate books, you know, these cloth books, paper books, from young people's lives. It doesn't want to share. Uh, it wants every minute of a young person's day and night. Uh, these are the materials of digital youth culture. They're commodities. They're in rivalry with other commodities. They run through screens and speakers, which means that they survive by garnering attention. Okay, they want minutes. Okay, they want people to attend to them throughout the day and night, and they grab at young people's eyes and pour into their ears. Uh, they do it in their bedrooms. Uh, now, the wiring, it's on their bodies. You know, you've got the, the, the iPod uh, with the earphones. You've got the, the cell phone. People now, the Blackberry, uh, these can be with you 24-7. And, and so it really is something that um, claims a place and is out to displace the other things that might claim their attention, such as books. Now, they do the same thing to adults, but anybody over 30 years old didn't pass through their childhood in this environment. The big difference here. Their minds and their tastes developed without so ceaseless a bombardment of media, without this 24-7 wiring uh, taking place. Uh, we remember when airports didn't have television screens uh, everywhere, at every gate. Uh, those of us over 40 go back to uh, a time when television meant ABC, CBS, uh, NBC, PBS, and a few local stations. Uh, when the new connections came along then, uh, we approached them having already matured in a different world, okay, in a different media. For, for the most part, I mean, you, know, you had television, but it wasn't so it wasn't so uh, proliferating, uh, and it wasn't so overwhelming. 
There weren't as many choices. The menu was much smaller. Uh, our cognitive habits developed alongside books, newspapers, magazines, blackboards, and typewriters. Uh, we wrote with pencils and drew with crayons and, and chalk as children, not keyboards, and mouses. And so this gives us a, a slightly different relationship uh, to these, these new digital developments. Uh, young people and teens, they've grown up with screens, earphones, ringtones, all around them, living with transient images from the start. Okay, you are the first generation reared on Google and Wikipedia. Uh, no cohort has witnessed such accumulations of wealth and advances in personal gadgetry. Uh, it's the natural thing to do, to pass your days and nights tapping a message into the Blackberry, or role-playing in a chat room, uh, surfing porn, logging into Facebook, checking for voice messages, and uploading pictures of yourselves while watching TV shows at the same rate that you did before the other diversions uh, appeared. I'll just say in terms of TV shows, there's been no dent in that. College students watch TV at a rate of three hours and 41 minutes a day, on average, per day. And those are, those are Nielsen ratings, so those are, those are pretty, um, uh, pretty reliable. So uh, this means that your professors, okay, us faculty members, people whose living is purveying the material in books, uh, whether we like it or not, we're engaged in a battle okay, with other attention grabbers, uh, with SportsCenter, Halo, MySpace, YouTube, and instant messaging. Uh, those things pull students away from the things we value. Uh, they evoke young minds into an accelerated consumption, taking in images and words and songs, pictures, messages, which come at them at a mad clip uh, at, at this point. Now, we're talking here about leisure time, not academic time, but the rhythm of all this digital stuff has an effect. Okay, if you talk to professors, they will say, anecdotally, uh, they will say that it's getting harder to assign a novel more than 200 pages long. It's harder to have students concentrate on a dense lyric poem for more than a minute or two. Uh, it's harder to require research projects that involve slow plotting investigations in the library, especially working with documents that can't be found uh, online, information that can't be gotten through Wikipedia. It's harder to expect students to have read works that, that we took for granted as having been just standard in, in high school or younger years. So what, what do we, you know, we, we are engaged uh, in this struggle, uh, these professors, your teachers. So what do we do? You know, how do we, how do we respond? Do we become curmudgeons and cranks and dinosaurs and reactionaries? Uh, and I, I admit those options are tempting. Um, but but, but they, they aren't effective. Uh, obviously, and it all depends upon how we wage what, what I look upon as a, as a war. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an educational or intellectual war. And our, our past, uh, for the professors in the humanities, uh, doesn't give us a very good example, I think, in, in tactics. Um, I, I was a graduate student in the 1980s, and among the many ideas and theories and agendas circulating back then and filtering down to us wannabes, uh, was a revised attitude toward popular culture. Uh, the conventional opinion was that academic study in the humanities focuses upon serious works with uh, long endurance. 
popular culture was more a topic for the social sciences than the humanities. And although this outlook had been fraying for a couple of decades already, and its forebears dated back much further to modernist writers and the New York intellectuals and scholarly tradition, it still had some institutional capital, uh, so to speak. But, but in the 1980s, uh, a fresh cohort of literature professors criticized that outlook more stridently than ever before. And they didn't just defend popular culture as a worthy object of humanistic study. They denounced the attitude that considered it unworthy of humanistic study. Uh, they had their forebears, uh, figures such as Raymond Williams, uh, but the point was pressed home more immediately in the 1980s by works such as Andrew Ross's uh, No Respect, Intellectuals and Popular Culture, uh, whose arguments rambled across several areas of pop culture, but whose lesson came down to us graduate students uh, as, uh, as a few simple messages such as, you know, get over this highbrow disdain for popular culture. Uh, recognize the liberatory or subversive potential of popular subculture expressions. And this argument had a lot going for it at the time. It seemed more egalitarian, less elitist. Uh, it seemed more hip, you know, more, more up-to-date, more, more current, more relevant to, to social realities. It was more productive. You know, it gave aspiring scholars a lot more things to write about, uh, a lot more material to, to cover. And one hoped that it would be more popular with students. You know, if you taught courses on, on some pop culture, you get bigger enrollments. You know, things would uh, look better from the, uh, from the eyes of the administration who saw great demand for, for your courses. Well, this last point uh, brings us sharply up to the present. And what we see now is a vastly different outcome than what the optimists of popular culture for humanistic study envisioned. As the Apple display shows, Digital culture directed at youth does have aggressive designs uh, on youth attention. It wants to encourage your consumption. It wants all your attention. And it will use all the adolescent attractions of novelty and gadgetry and, and quick pleasure to, to do so. It's a zero-sum game with a finite number of minutes in play. The more minutes you spend downloading music, the less you will spend on something else. And as we'll see, reading is, is one, of the, one of the first, book reading is one of the first casualties. Um, added to that, I'm not sure that the embrace of popular culture by many scholars and professors uh, had any academic appeal to students at all, except maybe to have a bit more popular courses for kids in other majors looking to fulfill humanities uh, requirement. But the, the, the big issue here is that in the humanities, we aren't gaining students. We're not gaining more time devoted to humanistic activity. We're losing students, and we're losing time, and the rate of loss is increasing. Now, the standard way of looking at that is to cite results from the U.S. Department of Education on the number of bachelor's degrees earned uh, in English uh, across the country. But I think to gauge uh, the larger status of humanistic interests among young people is to see how their habits off campus, their habits outside of class, reflect uh, the work humanities teachers do and the materials 
we value. And so this is why I focused here on the leisure reading habits of young adults, the reading that young adults voluntarily do. And this is the packet uh, that I handed out. And, and I want to run through just those, uh, those figures, those findings, just to give a, a snapshot of what is going on with leisure habits. Do you have the, uh, do you have the National Endowment for the Arts, that, that glossy brochure? Okay, take, take a look at that. And here, if people see things that they want to ask questions about, go ahead and go ahead and feel free to interrupt at this moment. I only have a few minutes to speak after we go through these charts, and we can uh, uh, we can then have the discussion section. But uh, this is a, a summation of a large survey that the endowment did, and it's been doing 82, 92, and 2002. And in in these findings. Uh, we simply asked how often people engage in different leisure habits, different arts participation, and that included reading, reading literature, fiction, poetry, and drama, and also reading books uh, of any kind in general. If you take a look at chart, uh, I think, it, is it chart seven that is done by age, age group? Okay, you'll see there, you'll see in 82, 92, and 2002, you see uh, different rates of decline for different age groups. The younger you go, the steeper the rate of decline. Okay. We've lost a lot of readers. And, and I'll say, the question we asked was, in the last 12 months, did you read any novels, any short stories, any poetry, any plays? This could be of any length, of any quality, of any genre, and in any format. If you read it online, if you read it on a screen, if you were going through a magazine and you saw a short poem there, and that was the only one you could think of. It was the only thing you read that you would count as a literary reader. We put the bar on the ground, basically. If there was any literature that had any place in the last year in your leisure time, you could count as a literary reader. So when we see this drop of 17 percentage points among young adults in terms of doing any reading, that's a huge decline. And when you think that the reading of literature, how fundamental that has been to the, a young person's education, to character, moral development, how this is such a long-standing and fundamental activity, something big is going on. Something very large is, is happening, and that there are millions fewer readers than there should be if we were at the same rates that we were at before. So this was this was the bad news out of the endowment, and it, it, it made a lot of it got a lot of attention. There were about uh, 600 stories, news stories, that came out about this report in the first month of its release. I think the New York Times did five stories and op-eds itself. Uh, on this, and, and we ended up, uh, Dana Joya and I ended up doing about 50 or 60 radio interviews in the first couple weeks uh, to, to discuss this. Okay, the next page that you find in your packet, the, the, the loose pages here, more charts. The next uh, two pages come from a report from the Department of Education. Uh, 
uh, on trends in test scores and reading habits. And there you get under the tables, they ask the percentages of students, basically fourth graders, eighth graders, and twelfth graders, pages read per day in school and for homework. And I'll just point you to one thing for nine-year-olds, not much change. On, in, in terms of the, uh, or, I'm sorry, for 17-year-olds, not much change at all. The pages read per day, per week, for homework was pretty much the same in 1984 as it was in 2004. For nine-year-olds, you see a big jump in pages read. They're reading a lot more. Uh, we went, if you look on the right-hand column there, 13% of them read more than 20 pages a week in 84. We've now got 25% of them. Yeah. So a lot more reading assigned in the younger grades, but we're not seeing the same thing in, in the older grades. All right. That is to set up the next page here. And this moves toward leisure reading, okay, the reading that young people and children want to do, okay, their voluntary reading at home. And if you look at the column on the right, the charts there, percentages of students by frequency of reading for fun in 84, 99, and 2004. We don't see much difference in nine-year-olds. Even though they're reading a lot more in class, their reading for fun held steady. Okay? That hasn't been cut into at all. And this may explain why nine-year-olds showed significant progress in reading scores from the 70s up to the last few years. But if you look at 17-year-olds, see that, catag uh, that column on the right, the, the blacked out part is those who never or hardly ever read for fun at all. So reading is based, reading for fun is just not on, not on their radar. They never do it. That went from 9% in 84 to 19%. It doubled in 20 years' time. Those who do it maybe a few times a year went from 10% to 14%. So a big shift away from reading for fun of any kind. Okay, these could be the back of cereal boxes if they wanted to count, count it. All right? Now, that may be an explanation for, even though they're doing the same amount of reading in class, they're doing a lot less reading out of class, that may be why we've had no progress in reading scores among high school students, among seniors. Reading scores have been flat for about 30 years, despite billions of dollars of investment. And when people examine this, they often try to focus on the classroom. Okay, what's going on in the classroom? How do we get better reading strategies, better reading pedagogies uh, taking place here? But people don't really talk that much about leisure habits. And that if you've got young people spending a lot less of their leisure time doing reading, then all of the innovations, all of the dedication taking place in the classroom may not get much progress at all. If you, young people here, if the students here, if you are not engaged in leisure activities that somehow reflect or support or complement your in-class work, then it's going to be very hard to get progress because if you think about if you think about the comparative hours between leisure time and class time 
Leisure time is like this. Class time is like this. In school, you're in school for about 100, in high school, you're in school for about 180 days a year. And you have about four hours per day of actual academic focus. You compare that to the leisure time and all the days that you're not in school. It's pretty tiny. So what you do with your outside time actually has an important effect on your in-class time. And there's not much that, 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 that your teachers can do to, uh, uh, to change that if, 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 if we don't see that connection. Okay, the next page. Now, those proceedings were on all students. The next page we have here results from the American Freshman Survey. Uh, and this is for students going to college. It's a big project. It's annual projects. It's housed at UCLA. They ask about 300,000 freshmen a battery of questions uh, about their activities. And here we have, again, reading for pleasure. This was 2005 figures. During your last year in high school, how much time did you spend during a typical week reading for pleasure? One quarter of entering freshmen were at zero. Okay. And these are, again, these are the good students, the students going to college. Okay. One quarter of them were at zero. Three quarters, 75% of them, were at two hours or less. Okay. So for three quarters of all the freshmen in college, you have an average of less than 17 minutes a day of any leisurely reading. Okay, reading. I mean, and again, these could be these could be uh, you know detective stories. These could be teen magazines. Anything for fun that you would do. You're reading them again. These are these are dismal numbers, and they're worse. In the mid '90s, the percentage of those who did no reading was only 19 percent. So we've jumped up, you know, full six percentage points uh, in in that time. Uh, I added there the male female breakdown just for. Uh, just, just for your benefit, to show that, you know, there's a big gender gap in academic achievement. Girls are surpassing boys in terms of their, uh, in terms of their, their grades, the number of courses they've taken, the number of electives they've taken, the number of serious courses they take, dropout rates, and on down the line. Uh, girls are are beating boys, and the classic. You know, the traditional areas of male dominance in math and science, that's eroding too. Uh, and, and it's getting worse. And college admissions offices are really having a hard time keeping their entering classes from being less than 60% female. Uh, if they get it down to 50 in the low 50s, it means they're doing affirmative action for boys. They're lowering the standards for boys to enter uh, than they are for girls, which they do, which, which most private schools do. If you, if you look, you know, the Cal State system is about... 65% girls, 35% boys in California. Uh, Berkeley is now, in the UC system, Berkeley is, is about 50, 56% girls, 44% boys. USC, private school in, in, uh, uh, in Los Angeles, is 50-50. The only way they can do that is raise the requirements for girls or lower them for boys. So... But here you see one reason for that is the leisure habits. Okay, Notice how, how much fewer women, how, how the reading rates for women are much higher than it is for boys. Okay, um, The next chart uh, is, is more complicated. 
Here we have reading assessments for freshman year. Once they've been in college for a year, and if you look at the column, the third, the third row there, number of books read on your own, not assigned, for personal enjoyment or academic enrichment while you were a freshman. This is a, a, a survey that's done by Indiana University annually every year. It's about 250,000 students involved. So reading on their own for fun or for enlightenment. None, 26%. Okay, one quarter of freshmen didn't read any books during the whole year that weren't assigned. 55% uh, read only one to four books. Okay, that was in 2003. The next chart, and I'll, I'll, I'll get through these quickly, the next chart is for 2005. Do we see any progress? Not really. We're still at about one quarter doing no re reading of no books, 56%, reading one to four books. They also ask in this survey about seniors. Okay, Do seniors have any? They'd ask them the same question so we can compare. You've got freshmen in 2003. A few years later, what has happened to them in 2005? How have their habits changed? There you've got the second row from the bottom, number of books read on your own. None. We've got a little progress. We've gone from 24% to 19%. Okay, that, that, that's, that's not bad, but one would expect a lot more. After four years of schooling, where is the intellectual curiosity? Okay, how much have your courses stimulated you over summer vacation to read more books? You've got all, you've got a, you know, several weeks at Christmas. What have you done? Are books an option? Still, for about one-fifth of the students, not at all. And we're still at 54% reading one to four. So those four years of college really haven't made much of an impact on leisure reading habits. And, and that this is, you know, this is, this is data that has to be, has to be accounted for, I think, in our, in our teaching and how we understand what we're doing in, uh, in the humanities. Okay. That last page I can save for, for discussion if people have questions uh, about that, that chart at the, at the top left there. It's, it's a little different and, and a little odd. Anyway, um, given, uh, given these findings, uh, given the, this survey research, uh, we, we ask, um, how do we adjust our methods? The teachers, you know, what, what do we do? First, we should recognize that there are powerful forces at work in young people's lives that pull them away from books. Okay? There's just a bigger menu of options, bigger menu of diversions. You know, and Kaiser Foundation did a study of, of teenagers' bedrooms and found that the average teenager now has a television, a cell phone, a computer. Uh, about one-third of them have DVD players and, and, and game, game consoles and uh, stereo uh, systems and, and the, the iPod and books. Okay, 20 years ago you did not have that 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 amount of uh, those amount of diversions available, and so the menu gets bigger and books because of the the, the sort of slower, more intense involvement required of books, they, they they tend to be the last option. You know you can multitask. You can download music while watching TV. You can you can email uh, at the at the same time that you know the television 
is on. You can't read a book and, and do, do other things. Books require just more concentration. And multitasking is very popular. You know, another thing Kaiser found was that the average 15-year-old logs eight and a half hours of media a day. Um, that included books, but books were way down on the list uh, among them. But eight and a half hours, and they did it in six and a half hours' time, which means they were doubling up, you know, multitasking. And so they, they might log three hours of TV, but during one hour of that TV time, they were also doing something else. So th this, is, this is a huge drain uh, on, on the minutes of reading time, and that we have to regard this as a rival, a competitor. Uh, the competitor certainly recognizes reading time. That's what that Apple display tells you. They realize that every minute spent not online is a minute not looking at the websites, not looking at the ads, not, not engaging in you know, consuming these commodities. Okay, so books are a rival to them. We have to look at them in the same way here, here in the humanities. We have a common mission, and the rise of digital habits threatens our work, and there's no alliance to be made here. Uh, I, I would say cooperation in this world is, is fatal. Second, I think uh, the humanities teachers here, we must clarify our aims. Uh, we can't just go with the negative message, which is what I've been giving for the last, for the last 30 minutes. We can't just attack uh, mass culture. This has been the error of conservatives for the last few years, and traditionalists. All they do is complain, and, and it hasn't gotten them anywhere. Uh, we need a positive message, something to counter the allure of digital habits, and I think that uh, that means uh, a couple of things. One, we need to make young people realize that the challenge and instruction of reading good books uh, will actually stand them quite well in their future careers. You know, with, with, with the economy becoming ever more oriented around communication and information, what the economy needs are better readers and better writers. Uh, it needs people who have more imagination, more mental flexibility, and more knowledge. Uh, these are especially important in a multicultural uh, economy as well as an information age. And when they survey business leaders, when they survey human resources managers who talk about hiring, about what are the biggest problems you face in the incoming workforce population, they will put computing skills or computer you know, uh, 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 facility way down on the list. Always near the top of the list is better reading and writing skills. And they will tell, they're starting to tell the schools, stop trying to teach computing, technology, internet, PowerPoint, and so on. Stop teaching them that. We can do that pretty quickly. What we can't do is teach that kind of background knowledge and better skills of reading and writing. That takes years to develop. That's why we have schooling. Okay. I mean, the, the careerism that affects young people's so early in their studies and that makes business so popular a major. Is, is business an undergraduate major here at Colorado College? No. Emory, Emory has a business major, and it, kids are flooding into it. Uh, but what makes that so popular is actually hinders 
the development of skills and knowledge that will help them once they get out of college. The, 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 um, you know, at, at the Aspen Institute uh, last summer, uh, it was the, the head of Sun, I think it was the head of Sun Microsystems. He actually gave a speech uh, precisely saying this, saying, don't think that just having computers in a classroom with all the kids at the screen is going to do a darn thing. Okay? We need to have good, more traditional instruction. Uh, in, in these things. Um, now, we don't want to instrumentalize humanity's learning by saying this is better skills development. No, that's precisely the opposite uh, that should happen. But we should take advantage of the benefits of our otherworldly uh, instruction. Um, the, the next thing, I think, uh, the positive message to pass along uh, to kids is to let them know that the four years of college really are unique time in their lives, and they pass real quickly, um, and that this is the only time in your life when you can read serious books and have the time and the opportunity to discuss them with people who can discuss them uh, with you. You can always go to Blockbuster and check out Titanic and, and watch it again and again. Uh, you can you can always you know log on to to MySpace. You can ne- you're never going to read Paradise Lost if you don't read it in college. You know you're never going to read Dante. Chances are it it, it won't happen unless it happens here. And so passing along the urgency to students of these four years and the the unique nature of this time in their lives. If they ask, whenever they ask. 28-year-olds, 25-year-olds, about their college experience, they always get, as part of the response, I wish I read these things. I wish I worked harder. I wish I focused more on my studies. They they, they always regret that uh, they didn't use the, the resources of college and the access provided here in a better way. And I mean, it's so easy not to, right? I mean, all the temptation is toward the fun and games. It's toward, you know, the social life. And, and that, you know, that, 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 that can't be underestimated. And there has to be some of that. And we can't, you know, we, we can't just, just be negative, again, about those aspects of college life. But we have to pass along, again, a sense of urgency. Okay, time is short. College students always say, I'm so busy. And they genuinely feel extraordinarily busy. And that's because they are flooded with diversions. They are flooded with activities and, and, and occasions and, and things to do and things to see. And, and that's why that's part of this atmosphere of competition for attention and for student time. And we have to impart the wisdom of seeing how many kids pass through and don't take full advantage of it. And that includes sort of preserving some space in these years from age you know, 18 to 23, uh, preserving some hours during the week for serious study of turning off the cell phone and disengaging from the computer, finding a space each day to spend an hour just doing some reading without interruption, Okay, without the, the computer dinging because an email came through or the, or the cell phone buzzing because a call came through. And you have to be vigilant 
about it because there are forces, again, trying to get into your life. And if you, if you aren't vigilant about preserving your own space for contemplation, for, for reading, they can be overwhelming. So I, I think uh, that imparting this uh, broader perspective on what these college years can mean, how quickly they pass, how often you'll regret it if you don't use them fully, and realize that the things you can do elsewhere, you shouldn't do so much here. The things that you can do here that you can't do anywhere else, a little more, uh, a little more focus on that. And that, that, that includes using your teachers, you know, really engaging them. They are a resource, again, that you'll never have uh, once, you, once you leave this place. So when we see these surveys about declining reading habits, I, I think we have to feel some regret that these are minds developing in ways that you know, the, full, the full measure of becoming a, a learned, intelligent college graduate uh, aren't, aren't being reached. So I'll end on that note and hope that there are, there are questions about the data or about the, the, the message. We, we actually did ask about books on tape. And you, you, you got a little bit of a jump in, in books on tape uh, listening to. It was still around the, the, single, the high single digits, 9 or 10% did that. But a lot of people do listen to books on tape. And the, the increase, I think, we attributed mostly to increased commuter times during the 90s. You know, the time people spend in their cars expanded a lot. And a lot of people survive by listening to those books on tape. When I do, you know, long driving trips, I, I love to listen to books on tape. And I'll pull into a gas station, I'll sit there reeling for 20 minutes, you know, because I don't want to get out and stop in, in the middle of a chapter or, or, or something. So we did have some of that. We asked things about uh, poetry readings, people attending poetry readings. That actually went up for certain, for certain populations. Poetry slams uh, can be pretty popular. And uh, one of the biggest gaps in, uh, in male-female reading had to do with poetry. Okay. Boys don't read verse. So. Yes? Was financial background, like family income, considered in study? Is there a chart in there showing income levels? In, in, the, in the endowment? I, I, we, we did. We did. You, you know, when you do a survey... When, when you do a, uh, when a government agency does a survey, you'd be amazed at all of the hoops you have to pass through in order to get your questionnaire approved. You know, we, we would we would develop we, we develop a questionnaire, and then we would have to go to the Office of Management and Budget and have it approved. We wanted to ask about Bible reading, religious readings. That's tricky for the government to do. Okay, so we we, we didn't ask about about that in our in our questionnaire. But demographically, you have to be very scrupulous in getting a representative sample of the American public. So what we did was we went to the census. We designed the questionnaire using experts and statistics and, and sampling and, and, and demographics to help us develop these questions. But we had the Census Bureau 
implement the questionnaire. So they actually developed a, a sample in which they had, we, we had over 17,000 respondents, and they did it by household visits and follow-up phone calls. But we had to do it so that in the sample, you had the same proportion of urban, suburban, rural in the sample as you would have in the larger population. The same proportion of Hispanic, uh, Hispanic men aged uh, 35 to 44 that you would get in the population. So it had to be very scientifically designed. When you see most surveys, most polls, you know, how big are those? About 800 people. And a lot of times they're just, you know, cold calling. That's it. Uh, which is why so, so, so many of the polls are, are unreliable. Um, so when you see these kinds of reports, look at two things. Sample size, respondent rate. You know, we had a 70% respondent rate, which is really high. Um, sample size, respondent rate, and the, the so-called margin, margin of error. That's how they put it. Our margin of error was, was, a, was less, than, less than a half a percentage point uh, for, for all these findings. So we, we, we were pretty confident. And, and people didn't like hearing about this, so we had to defend. I had to go give, give talks, and I, I was, I was uh, you know, I was on one, one, gave one talk at the University of Maryland, and there were all these students there, and they had a panel of five faculty members, and each one got up, and one guy said, I am furious that you didn't include rock music among, among, these, uh, among these questions about music. We, we asked about opera and jazz and classical music. We didn't ask about rock and roll. Anyway, there are a couple. Yes. <laughs> you know, if you ask a lot of young people about reading, the, the reason they say they don't do it is they don't like it. Yeah, it's no fun. Um, but by reading for pleasure, uh, we were just saying just stuff you want you want to do, and that include could include romance novels. That include could include children's book. That include Harry Potter. Harry Potter is the most important book in, in for college students for, for reading for pleasure, uh, the Harry Potter series. Um, the, thing, the, the, the important thing is that even... Th this is the significance of the chart that I didn't go into uh, in this list. You see this chart showing... Uh, uh, where is it? Statistics... Selected statistics for major sources of spoken and written language. Okay, and it lists things like children's books, preschool books. Now, that one column is rank of median word. Now, what that means is linguists can rank words in English by their frequency of usage. You know, computers allow them to, to do this now. You know, the, like number one. And as you go down, words become more and more uncommon, and they become classified then after thousand, after one thousand, as sort of rare words. Now, it's very important in the development of reading and writing and intelligence to build a vocabulary. The larger your vocabulary is, the better you do on your verbal SAT scores your GRE tests in, in verbal, but the better your writing tends to be, and, and the more you can read, the more you can identify these uncommon words. 
building vocabulary is an essential part of developing your mind. One of the ways you do this is by reading a lot. And you have to read things that contain a lot of words you don't recognize. That's how you learn new words. If you look at the rating here of rare words per thousand, you see that you will encounter more rare words by reading a children's book than by watching a primetime TV show. Okay, a book for a, a nine-year-old will, will, will introduce you to more rare words than the OC will, an episode of the OC. Okay, so th th that's why we would include here as part of intellectual development reading, you know, uh, uh, children's books, reading People magazine. I mean, even though Time magazine is written at a ninth grade level, it's still better than watching TV. It's better also than, than reading a teen blog. Okay, one, one of the things people say, wait, online, people read a lot and they write a lot. Look at all those blogs. You know, most blogs in this country are written by 13 to 19 year olds. More than 50% of the blogs are kept by teenagers. Their diaries on the day's events, you know, making fun of the teachers and friends and things like that. Do, do, do you log on to these teen blogs? Do you, Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> it may be very intelligent, but for the most part, these blogs, it may be very... For the most part, these blogs are written in the discourse of... The 15-year-old writes the blog in the discourse of the 15-year-old. Okay, it's, it's the language that is largely spoken by the kids. And so reading that it's not going to contain a lot of those rare words. It's not going to contain a lot of those more sophisticated syntactical structures that help you develop your, your writing style. It's one of the problems with a lot of the online material. It doesn't evoke, and, and a lot of it is where the kids go, it doesn't evoke that mental verbal challenge that helps you take, take future steps. Yes? I wonder what well, the, the, you know, the libertarians for instance, and anarchists love the internet because you, you have the blogs, you have more independence, you have people, more people empowered to have an audience. And anyone, you know, anyone has the opportunity to post to a massive, potentially massive audience. I mean, I, I went to, uh, I was at a, at a function of bloggers, a panel of bloggers in, in Washington a year or so ago, and they were all carried away with one thing, the Dan Rather episode. Okay. This, this was the Dan Rather exposing the, the Bush letters as a hoax, the, 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 the type letters about his... Uh, and, and, and a blogger, the bloggers really uncovered that very quickly when the report came out, and they disseminated it. So this is taking them as an example of that democratization, of getting away from big government and big media, and the control over information and, and access. And so th this, is, this is the great uh, success story uh, for, for them, and they keep, they, keep, they keep citing that. Now, and, and, and this, is, this is true. For, I would say, the proportion of 
active, interested people. Uh, people who do go on and look at the daily costs. Right? That's the leading lefty blog. And, and uh, Marcos... Oops. Marcos... Uh, I'm not sure. I can't remember what his last name is. But, but he's, he's become very powerful and an influence in the Democratic Party. Well, when they look at Internet usage among young adults, less than 1% of them had ever even heard of, of the daily costs. So all the potential that you're talking about is there. There are wonderful things on the Internet. There are museum collections. There are maps. Uh, we have you know, the, what the Smithsonian does with, with its websites. Uh, encyclopedias, uh, not just Wikipedia, but, but you know, the Oxford English Dictionary. All that is there, but that is not where young people go. The most popular site for young people is Facebook. It's Facebook. So in, in, in one research study, 75% of, of college students had logged on to Facebook in the preceding week. Um, so this is, this is, this is the, popular, the popular thing. Sports sites, celebrity sites, porn sites, um, and, and teen, site, teen, teen social sites like Facebook and, and MySpace. That's, that's really the dominant area. Now, uh, whether, uh, whether that means access I don't think it does, because that is not preparing young people for the adult realities, the realities that are going to hit them real hard once they graduate, for one thing, and hit the workplace. Um, once they uh, uh, get uh, a taste of some of the economic realities of, of adult life. And, you know, we have, one, one, one writer puts it, we have hard America and soft America. Soft America is the world of the schools, where you have lots of safety nets, where you have lots of attention. Uh, you have a lot of help and assistance and guidance and uh, uh, mistakes are made and you're, you're, you're eased through those mistakes. And then you hit hard America, which is leaving school and going into the workplace. And it's an unforgiving world. You can be late with a paper and the professor will you know, bend a little bit and, 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 and help you out with that. If you're late with a project in the workplace, that's a problem. You do it, do it, do it a few more times and you're out. And no one cares. No one's going to help you. So um, I think that the diversions that are miraculous for, for young people, they're, they're, they're always there. You can have what, what's called the daily me. You know, you get up in the morning and you can log on and you've got messages to you. You've got uh, ads coming from the stores that you like. Uh, you have a reflection of your own needs and your own interests. And it's all about you. The world doesn't work that way. And you have rude awakenings uh, when, you, when you leave school. The campus reinforces a lot of that, many aspects of the campus. 
are, I, I look at the dormitories for, for, for students today at Emory. I compare them to the, the cinder block, you know, cells that was our dorm rooms <laughs> when, I, when I was back in school. But when, when I went, started college in 70, 78 uh, or so, I thought, wow, this is, this is great. Um, uh, but it's not real life. And, and uh, there's an adjustment period for young people through their 20s, getting through these uh, and, and recognizing the, the unfortunate thing is that they adjust to adult realities in a lot of workplace terms and a lot of economic terms, but the, the adjustment can't take place in intellectual terms. It's almost too late to spend time studying world affairs. It's too late to study the American history that, that, that will help you understand current events. It's too late to understand uh, you know, debates between liberalism and conservatism because way, the way you see them now is people yelling at each other on the cable news shows. Ann Coulter, taken as a representative of conservatism, that's an abomination. Okay, to understand conservatism, you need to go back and read Edmund Burke. You need to read classic liberalism, such as John Stuart Mill, in order to understand contemporary liberalism, and what what, what has happened to contemporary liberalism from, uh, you know, during the 1960s and 1970s, the big changes that it that it went through. But to do that kind of background preparation, reading those books, it's too late. No. Too late. Yes. I, I agree with you. Yeah, and 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 the the potential for digital uh, digital connections to raise knowledge levels, to improve skills, it, in the technology, it's all there. And the schools keep trying to bring it in and find ways to integrate that, that technology in, in the classroom. But when you have the content there of MySpace, um, and, you know, who wants to... And, and, and it's appeal to adolescent desires, adolescent interests. And the adolescent mind, the adolescent ego, is a very fragile, delicate confuse, mixed-up thing. That's, that, that's the nature of adolescence. Right? You're, you're, you're still coming into who you are, and, and you're not quite certain. In that environment, you know, you're going to want to... Why bother going to the History News Network to read what historians are saying about current events or, or debating with each other about past events? Do you want to do that? Or do you want to take pictures of yourself having fun at parties and uploading them onto MySpace? Okay, the appeal is too strong. And marketers, you're right. I wouldn't say they're cynical. I, I would say, I mean, some of them are cynical. Sure, but I would say they're out to make money. They're out to develop their own, their own commodities. And... They're so much better at it than presses are. I mean, 
presses have no idea how to market their books. Only when they get a superstar author, and like Stephen King, will they really go into develop sophisticated marketing campaigns. If you, could, if, you, if you knew how many presses invest huge amounts of money in books that completely do nothing. I remember, you know, Viking, uh, Viking gave Marsha Clark, the attorney in the O.J. Simpson case, they gave her $2 million advance. No one bought that book. No one wanted to read anything about Marsha Clark. No one liked her. Uh, she lost, okay, um, among other things. She, 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 she lost the case. So, you know, you think, how could they do that? Um, whereas, actually, how, how, many, how many presses turn down Harry Potter? Who publishes Harry Potter, do you know? Scholastic. Which, which it was a Scholastic was a significant press in the children's young adult fiction world, but it's no it was it was no one in terms of you know Random House and 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 Penguin and so on. Well, you know Scholastic has made billions off of off of Harry Potter, which is why Harry Potter the author um, what's her name uh, Rowling right she she's the richest woman in England now. The richest woman in England. Richer than the Queen of England. Okay. So I, I think I think you're right. It's the content. It's the content. But how do you how do you steer young people when, when the access is so immediate, the gratification is so fast? And and we all I mean we all like to slum it. You know, even scholars like to slum it. It's 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 not a question of saying never look at MySpace. It's a question of that positive message would be just reserve some time for this stuff. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a proportion, it's a balance issue. And uh, the balance is just edging, you know, the, the proportions are edging the, the good stuff out. And I don't know how to reserve, re- reverse that. It's a tidal wave of, of digital mass culture that uh, we're fighting a desperate rearguard action and... I, I won't give you my vision of, of, of 20 years from now. Uh, it's too, it's too, too, too dark. I, I so. think there's hope for uh, the digital media. I, 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 I hope. I, I, that would be great. That would be great. Socrates never wrote. He never wrote anything down. I'd, I'd love, you know. All of you who have Facebook and MySpace pages, you've got to you, you've got to put put some quotes from Paradise Lost on there. Just just add a few to, to talk about how talk about how wonderful Satan is, okay? In Paradise Lost, yes, and then and then yes, right. And, and you know that is peer connections are essential to one's social development. Okay, this is. Part of, you know, breaking free. Part of breaking free of family, and part of developing the kinds of social habits that you'll need as an adult. Uh, but there's an added thing happening here. You need those horizontal connections with peers 
but you also need more vertical connections with adults. Role models, people, people whom you can talk to, to whom you can speak about things you really can't speak about with peers. I mean, there are things you want to talk about that you feel a little embarrassed to talk about peers. And, and again, the peer adolescent world can be a ruthless world. I, I would say that, that you look at some of the cliques in middle schools, and those are as uh, those are as savage and cruel as you know the the you know the uh, uh, a phone sales firm. You know the 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 the, the what do they call them? I mean, that can be, middle school can be, again, very, very tough. And that what helps you get through that is having relations, again, with, with older figures. But not at the expense of those, those, those peer relations. The, the problem with a lot of the digital contacts is it's a 100% peer-oriented world. It's 100% adolescence. And that... Again, if the proportion gets too strong, you are not doing what you're... I mean, what you said, you like reading. Okay, sometimes it might be nice to go read uh, some, some Shakespeare after all this flood of MySpace and, and, and you know, music, videos, and so on like that, that it'd be nice if that were also a refuge in the same way that local contact with peers might be might be a refuge uh, as well. Again, it's all the so it's the old it's the old concept of moderation that is significant here. Uh, yes, ma'am, and then and then, sir. You know uh, that that obviously is is one of the big variables. Uh, one of the most important determinants of academic success, the teachers will, will, will tell you this, is the amount and quality of reading material in the home. So, some, one, 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 one person looked at Department of Education data and found that that is actually a stronger determinant than income level. And, and you could say that a child from a lower middle class home with lots of books in it is more likely to do well in school than a child from an upper middle class home that doesn't have a lot of books. Or, or, or good magazines and newspapers, and so on. And that most reading habits are learned at home. And they begin at a very early age. And when you find children entering into kindergarten, uh, coming from a text-poor household with a vocabulary of about 2,000 words, versus children entering kindergarten from a book-rich household, with about 5,000 words, the, the, these distinctions can be this, this wide. Child psychologists have, have studied this. That's a huge barrier, and that 2,000-word child never catches up. Okay? At each level, the challenges get harder and harder, and oftentimes the, the separation is even wider. So, yes, that is, that's a big factor. And the second thing you said about how the digital, the screens, and so on become ways for the household to operate. One of the big determinants of academic success is single-parent versus dual-parent household. And the problem with the single-parent household isn't 
they speak of as, I mean, conservatives talk about this in sort of moral terms, but, and that, that may be part of it, but the single parent ends up spending far less time, the, the, the infant has far less contact time with the parent doing things such as reading. And you can see this when they chart rates of television watching in single parent versus dual parent households because that single mother comes home, picks up the child from daycare, takes them home, she's, she's got to make dinner, she's got to pay bills, whatever. What do you do? You plunk the child in front of the TV with a video. Okay, It becomes like a babysitter. And they build up more, a lot more hours. Children from single-parent households can tend to watch 30-plus hours a week of television. The rate is far less. And the, 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 this, um, this, unfortunately, this is part of the racial gap in achievement. Um, as well. So, yes, agreed, agreed. Sir? You know, here is, if one can develop policies like that that would would help, that would be great. Uh, The problem is, this comes back to to what, what someone here had said, culture always finds ways around um, government programs, just put it that way, or taxes. I mean, cultural networks are, 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 it's very hard to contain. It would be very hard to contain the the operations of, of the Internet, for example. I mean, the Internet has thrown a lot of issues of, of, of for example, I mean, Think about, think about all the things that the Internet has made difficult. Taxation, for instance. Taxation of goods purchased over the Internet. You know, they, they tried to tax those, and a lot of states did it, a lot of states didn't, and so that has become something that they've sort of given up on. Um, pornography over the Internet. Can't control it. Gambling over the Internet. That is, is, is very hard to control as well. So... This is the new technologies and the way those have been integrated into personal lives. We'll just put it this way. It's way ahead of our capacity to examine how to try to steer it in more constructive directions, whether through forms of taxation or in, in the classroom and so on. You know, we, we can't keep up. The innovations... Are, are always far ahead of our capacities to contain those innovations or to, 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 to you know, regulate them in some way. It, it's, they're, they're really smart people working <laughs> at, 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 at producing video games and working on how to reach populations. This is what they spend all their time doing. How can we get more kids to buy this product? How can we get more girls to play video games? Boys do video games at twice the rate girls do. That means we got it. We got a consumer segment out there that we haven't really drawn in yet. Um, so they're 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 working all the time uh, on this, and they're making a lot of money. I mean, when Halo Two came out, I think within the first 24 hours, they made 125 million dollars of people ordering Halo Two. You know, down downloading the game and paying for it in the first 24 hours. 
um, that, that, that so much. I mean, they talked about they used to talk about blockbuster movies making making that much money in a year. Okay, Halo Two did it in one day. So uh, there was yes, ma'am. It, you see some of the same patterns happening, but not so. We're, we're leading the world uh, on on these on these measures. Um, Canada, I mean, in terms of reading rates, we're about in the middle of developed nations. Um, Northern European countries read a lot more than we do, but some of the Southern European countries read read less. Uh, Canadians read more than we do, um, but we read more than Mexicans. Do so. In terms of of uh, uh, the good, let's just say the good intellectual habits, we're kind of we're kind of in the middle. Uh, but in terms of the growth of digital habits, we're we're way in front um, on on these things. Th- this is reflected in academic achievement. Uh, in math, uh, American students are. American 12th graders are in the lower half of developed nations. We rank, on the latest international tests, we rank 29th out of about 43, 44 nations. Our fourth graders actually do quite well. They're, they're near the top, but by 12th grade, we're, we're pretty far behind. In, in, in terms of reading scores, we're about in the middle again. Oh. Um, the uh, I, I think there is a there is a lot of creative stuff going on uh, on the web, uh, obviously, and it's it's a venue for people. I mean, I, I was just watching uh, CNN or one of the shows, and they they are biography and they were profiling Kevin Spacey and the actor, and, and he actually developed a website on which writers could post their their treatments. They're films, and a lot of people use this. And what happened was a lot of agents started looking at this site, and even some producers started looking at the site, and they found some scripts, and some scripts were, were actually bought. And they wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened without the Internet. Okay? That provided that kind of access, and it gave uh, a filtering mechanism so that people could pick and choose uh, what they like. There we see you know, this is a wonderful thing. This is a great for creative people. Once again, it's all there. Potentially, it's all there. But what we need to do is focus on where young people go and what, where does the bulk of their consumption of the screen happen. I'll also say that reading on the screen is a different thing from reading a book. And th- there's one research group. Uh, it's called Nielsen. It's not Nielsen Media Ratings. It's a guy named Jacob Nielsen who's been studying reading. And what, what, what he does is he has machines that are able to look at people's eyes to watch the way their eyes move when they hit web pages and also follow the course of web pages, timing, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the clicks moving from one web page to another. And one of his studies was called How Users Read on the Web. And he was doing this not out of any, not trying to prove anything. He was actually trying to help web designers 
design more effective web pages. And the first sentence of how users read on the web was, they don't. And it was in boldface. They said, they scan the page. Only about 15% of the subjects read linearly, okay, line by line, sentence by sentence, word by word. About 85% of them, by scanning the page, what he meant was, they look at images, they look for keywords, they jump from this part of the paragraph down to, down to this paragraph, and what is the average time? Do you, do you know the average time that people spend on a web page if they don't stay there? They leave within three seconds. Okay, there's sort of the three-second rule. Web designers say, if you don't catch someone within three seconds, gone. That person's gone to the next web page. So now that kind of reading, that, that is one kind of reading, one kind of information processing, which is very useful when you just want to gather information quickly. But it doesn't provoke, again, the more focused, analytical reading habit. And if you grow up spending most of your reading doing that kind of reading, when you come into class and your teacher gives you an Emily Dickinson lyric and says, let's talk about this, those dense metaphors and those, those, those angular phrases, that, that, that eccentric verse form, well, you're not going to have the mental equipment to do that, to focus, and, and to see how this, this particular metaphor works, that requires a slower, more closer engagement with language. And that's not your habit. Your habit is quick, moving from here to here. Uh, there's a, a principal at an elementary school told me a while back that his fourth, fifth, and sixth grade teachers are having a problem with uh, their students because when they assign a topic, go out and research slavery. The, uh, the assumption that the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders have is, okay, I'm going to go, here's how I'm going to research it. I'm going to type in the keywords on Google or another search engine, and I'm going to go to the sites, I'm going to download the relevant information, I'm going to assemble it, I'll cut and paste a little bit, I'll add a little bit of my own sentences, and then I'll print it up and pass it along to the teacher. Okay, so this really is a model of, of, of learning as information retrieval and passing it on. It's not knowledge building. Okay, it's not sinking deeper into their minds and their memories. Okay, the same thing with PowerPoint. Okay, I think there's now a reaction against PowerPoint. People are sick of PowerPoint. They see how superficial it is. But, you know, a few years ago, there was a, there was a magnet school in California that was big on tech, it was technology, and one of their, they're big on PowerPoint. Research papers were done in PowerPoint, things like that. And their, their motto was, it doesn't matter what you know, it only matters what you show. Okay, this was their, their mantra. So, um, now again, for certain purposes, this works very well. But, for other purposes that we still think are important, um, they are uh, uh, a problem. Okay, last question. Last question. 
well, you know, starting with TV, the schools have, have often said, how, how can we use this medium? How can, we, how can we do this in the classroom? How can we bring video in? How can we bring you know, screens and so on? Now how can we bring blogs? They're using blogs in the classroom, PowerPoint and so on. How can we do this? Now what I would say is maybe it can be done and we need some real creative people. We need some money. You know, those creative people, they need incentives to do it. They need some money to make that happen. And as you said, literacy is not a high consumer commodity. I mean, if you think about a book, a paperback book is an extraordinary technology in itself. That, that, that light little tiny thing that fits in your pocket, a paperback book, you can carry it around, you can read it in all different places, and it provides for you several hours of entertainment and it costs a couple of bucks. That's all. That's a great entertainment. But it's a slow consumption. Okay? You can buy a paper, you can buy paperback books at used bookstores for a quarter. You know, you can go get all romance novels. You know, pe people come in with bags full of romance novels to exchange for another bag of romance novels uh, at, at used bookstores or detective stories. There isn't the, the profit margins are much smaller than they are for the video games or for, I mean, you know, look at the late 90s and the, and the, and the NASDAQ explosion. Um, so I think that there, there is, there's an economic issue here in terms of getting people to, to do that uh, in, in some way. And marketers will go where they think the consumers will follow, and if they just craft their message a little better, a little differently, they have to believe that there's a consumer demand out there uh, waiting, waiting for them. Uh, you're, you're right about that. But, but again, I, I wish that uh, there, were, there were ways to, to unite this, but I will say every attempt to push, to, to boost reading using the technology, maybe in this classroom it might work, or that classroom might work, but on, on the national level, you know, we're, 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 not, we're, not, we're, not getting, we're not getting there. And when you do, do see it work in a very local way, often that could be because if you took any technology and you had a dedicated teacher, and the most important factor in student learning is the quality and dedication of the teacher. It's not the quality of the, of the room or, or um, it's, it's really the, the teacher that's in place. So, when, when Apple comes in and redoes a whole school, trains all the teachers, brings all the wiring in there, and you get great results, you want to say, well, if you took a company like Apple and you had it bring in great new textbooks, new blackboards, new, new you know, resources, activities, and train the teachers, you might get just the same kind of improvement without any technology. So it, it's, it's very hard to to determine what are the factors in, in a classroom that, that, that boost these things. Does that address? Okay. Okay. Thank you.